This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. What do you do when you reach the pinnacle of your political career, becoming leader of your party, and nobody cares? Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. The Labour Party finally replaces Jeremy Corbyn this week, with Sir Keir Starmer likely to be picked as his replacement. But with all the attention, rightly, on coronavirus and the government soaring in the polls for its handling of the crisis, what can the leader of Her Majesty's opposition do to get noticed? Who better to ask than a man who, at the age of just 36, became leader of his party after suffering the worst election result for a century hoping to turn things around. I'm delighted to be joined by William Hague, Conservative Party leader from 1997 to 2001, and later, of course, Foreign Secretary and now Lord Hague of Richmond. We'll discuss his PMQ's greatest hits, the speeches that nobody noticed, that baseball cap, and, back by popular demand, we launch next week our World Cup of political TV shows. So I'll ask him to name his favourite too. But first, the obvious question... Why on earth would anyone want to be leader of the opposition? Well, it's the essential stepping stone, isn't it, to being prime minister, unless, of course, you become prime minister like Theresa May or like Boris Johnson while your party is in government. It's the usual stepping stone to being prime minister. It's an unusual job. It's a job that you take in order to lose the job, in order to move on to another job. It's a very unusual thing in life, actually. You take it on because you think you might get a totally different job as a result of the job of prime minister. And, of course, when you do that, you're making a calculation of whether that is possible. In my case, in 1997, a, a completely erroneous calculation. But you're taking a gamble, even if there's a one in ten chance only that it's going to lead you to be prime minister. Well... Maybe that's a chance worth taking. Maybe it will never come round again. So these are the sorts of calculations that people are making when they become leader of the opposition. I suppose the question of timing is really important because lots of politicians, perhaps all politicians in their quiet moments think, well, I, of course, one day could be prime minister or I should be prime minister. But picking your moment for when you go 
for it and throw your hat in the ring. You know, history is full of people who who hold out thinking that there, there might be a better moment, time might come for them later. Um, you were 36 when you did it, which made me feel, oh, I mean, that's younger than I am now. And I definitely should, should probably never be leader of the opposition. Why did you feel that that was the moment to do it? Or did you just say, well, somebody's got to try and pick up the pieces after the, the result in 1997? Well, it was a mixture of all these things, really. Partly, yes, this feeling that I'd met a lot of people who had waited for their moment to be party leader. And that moment had never come. You know, when I sat in the cabinet, the conservative cabinet under John Major in the mid-1990s, there were lots of people who thought that they were going to be the leader of the party or thought they would already have been by that point. And none of them were. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to sit around for 20, 30 years waiting for this, even if this is against all the odds that uh, that it will ever lead to being prime minister. Let's throw the dice. Let's uh, The chance might never come round again to seize the party leadership. So there was that calculation. And the other factor was exactly just as what you said in, in your question, the, the somebody had to do it. And therefore, there, there can be this additional thing that politicians do, believe it or not, have a sense of duty and public service somewhere in their, in their makeup. You know, that's one of the factors. Hopefully, it's a big factor as to why people go into politics. And in my case, there was my party that lost half its members of parliament. It did have other leadership contenders. But all of the other leadership contenders we're going to face some pretty big problems in keeping the party together over, guess what, the European Union and the, <laughs> and, and, and the Euro. Um, Luckily, you settled that issue, so it never came up again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did settle it for a while. I, well, I settled our policy <laughs> on the Euro. But, you know, I did think, much as I adore and respect Ken Clark, actually, and always have, that if I didn't stand, probably... Uh, in 1997, Ken Clark would have won the leadership. Some people may have thought that was a very good thing. But the Conservative Party could have truly split then over Europe. Whereas I thought, well, I could, because I was um, a Eurosceptic, but a kind of pragmatic one, I had the basis of keeping it all together. And therefore, a lot of people come to you in that situation and say, it's your duty to stand. And, and after the 30th or 40th member of parliament has been hammered on your door and says it's your duty to stand. You might even believe it is your duty to stand. <laughs> so there was a, re- a mixture of those factors in, in me standing in 1997. And so you, without reliving the entire campaign and without over-egging the comparisons to what's happening right now, but you become... Uh, leader up against a prime minister who is soaring in the polls. Um, 72% satisfaction Tony Blair enjoyed. I think without picking over old wounds, I think you won about 12% at the time. What do you do then in your first, you know, you become leader. It it sounds like a very big job. Leader of a man is opposition, but you have no team or infrastructure. Mm -hmm. The first thing you have to do presumably is pick your shadow cabinet. Well, you do. Well, in fact, there's something even before that, which is you have to have a few staff operating around you, you know, because 
Legally, it's very different from government. When you become a secretary of state, a prime minister, whatever, it's like being appointed chief executive of a big corporation. There's an organization humming along. You know, there's an office you walk into. There's lots of staff all there working hard at the moment you arrive. When you become leader of the opposition, there's nothing there. These staff you're <laughs> going to appoint are your own. It's more like setting up a small business than walking into an executive suite. Now, this might not be as bad for the new leader of the Labour Party this week as it was for me in 1997, because we were coming out of government into opposition after 18 years in government. So we really had no infrastructure of opposition. But even if there is some infrastructure, the leader needs their own staff. And all the old staff will have gone with the previous leader. And in fact, um, I should think the new leader of the Labour Party will be particularly <laughs> hoping that the staff have all gone with, them, with the previous leader. So you have to decide immediately, well, who's my chief of staff? Who's my political secretary? Who's my head of communications? Otherwise, you can try and appoint a shadow cabinet, but there's nobody to set up the phone calls and there's nobody to tell the press that you've done it. <laughs> so, um, so that's the first thing. And then, yes, very quickly you have to have a shadow cabinet. And um, this, of course, is where mistakes can easily be made because then in the space of a few hours, you have to appoint 20, 30 people. And if you get one of those wrong in one of the big positions, well, that's a nightmare for the next few years as to how to remove them or how to work with them. So, of course, you really need to have made a good plan for that before, you know, if you think you're going to win the leadership, well, then in the previous week, in a quiet moment, you need to take some time out of your campaign to think, well, who am I actually going to make the shadow chancellor, the shadow foreign secretary, and so on. Is there, when you're talking about making an appointment, which later turns out to be a nightmare, was anyone in particular that you're <laughs> thinking of from your early days? <laughs> well, no, no, I, I, I was fortunate in the... Um, in my initial appointments, it's quite well known, I think, that I, later on, as leader of the opposition, after I'd brought Michael Portillo back in when he got back into Parliament, then we had some difficulties, and um, although we get on fine now, but then we had some difficulties. In the initial appointments, I really went for the fairly conventional approach, as it were, of appoint people who were the leadership rivals, who were big figures in the last cabinet and then change them each year. I would have an annual reshuffle where I would thin them out. And so over the space of four years, I changed nearly the entire leadership. So I went about it in that way. Now, this depends on your circumstances as leader of the opposition. In, in the case of the Labour Party now, a large part of the Labour Party will have, will have felt or said that they couldn't serve in a Jeremy Corbyn shadow cabinet. So those people will presumably all become available suddenly. And so you could have a much bigger change. There's, there's no hard and fast rule about this. It depends on the circumstances. To what extent do you think, because there's also a, there's upsides and downsides too, well, we'll have a broad church and we'll have someone from every wing of the party representing. And uh, But then obviously the downside to that is they could end up causing trouble and you don't really have any direction. And maybe sometimes having a bit of a clear out sets a tone and a message and sense of direction as well. A leader has to create a broad church in a political party, but not so broad that it 
stands for everything and nothing. <laughs> there are churches in the world that have that problem. Certainly there are political parties. So if we think back to my case, trying to resolve at the beginning the problems then over whether Britain should join the euro, my rule was, well, I want people from all across the party. However, they have to be prepared to sign up to a policy that the Conservatives will not join the euro. And for the next decade, that is our policy. Now, that did exclude people. That meant, you know, Ken Clark, who I defeated, didn't want to serve in the shadow cabinet. But it did mean that the great majority who did join knew that was the score and that we could actually start to end that dispute, at least in the leadership of the party. So that's a calculation every leader has to make. Of course, you, you really want to show the world that you're uniting your whole party, but you don't want the instant unity of the first shadow cabinet photograph to then turn into complete paralysis when you come to make a decision. So you have to you have to make that trade-off. Now, obviously, one of the big things, and certainly one of the, the, the maybe the only things that the public notice from a leader of the opposition is PMQs. And for all of the other challenges that you faced, you became very well known for being very good at PMQs. How did you go about preparing for that? How did you, did you, how much time did you spend sort of thinking about it, whether it was coming up with jokes or attack lines? How did you approach Prime Minister's questions? Well, I approached it as it, it was virtually the only thing I got going for me <laughs> in, a, in a universally bleak situation. And it catered to my strengths. I had lots of weaknesses, but you know, I've, I've always done well in parliamentary debate. And it was, I treated it as fun, really. It was uh, tying in with those things. So I had a group that was, um, that, that have turned into very distinguished people. You know, there was, there was George Osborne, and there, were, there was Danny Finkelstein, and other people came and went. And they would help me out with it. And in the process of preparing for Prime Minister's questions, we actually decided lots of other things. You know, we came up with ideas for speeches and political initiatives and found things out that were very useful more broadly than Prime Minister's questions when we researched various subjects. So we treated it like that as a sort of centerpiece of thinking about what we were doing of which Prime Minister's Questions was then a kind of a side effect of the meetings we would have on a, on a Tuesday evening or Wednesday morning to prepare for it. So it was a fun process and a, an intellectually interesting process, which then probably showed through in the question, you know, that I usually, because I didn't always come off best from this, but um, usually I visibly enjoyed the the actual doing the questions, and this would then raise the morale of my party, which would then sink for the next six days until we had another. <laughs> <laughs> then it would go up again on Prime Minister's Questions Day. And by the way, this can work for Prime Ministers, particularly someone like Margaret Thatcher. And in her day, there were two 15-minute sessions, not the, um, the one 30-minute session we've got used to now. 
So that meant on Tuesdays and Thursdays, she would use the preparation for Prime Minister's question as the way of interrogating all the departments about what they were doing so she could answer questions about them. And she used it as an instrument of government and thinking. There's, a, there's more to it than, than just narrowly preparing for a single occasion. Looking back, what's your sort of fa- your your greatest hits? What's your favourite hit on Tony Blair, or the best joke, or the the moment when you thought that you know this this has landed well? I'm glad to say there's a lot to choose from here, but I, I think <laughs> when they, they I don't know if you remember, but the 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 new Labour government had this idea it would publish an annual report on its achievements, like a company. You know, it was one of these new ideas in politics. And they would have a tick for when they'd accomplished something in their manifesto and, or, a, you know, a gap or a cross where they hadn't. Well, of course, you can imagine the difficulties this led them into. And by the 1999 annual report, it was just a risible document. <laughs> um, and we had such fun with that. There's so much fun at the Dispatch Force. They never published another one you know they they had errors they they had claimed the new national institute for sport or whatever it was going to be called had been found created in sheffield well since seb coe was my closest advisor he was able to tell me no brick had been laid the thing wasn't happening and so we uh, tony blair was utterly destroyed about that um then we found out that of the 50,000 copies of the previous annual report, 40-something thousand had been bought by the government. So we were, we were able to say, you know, this is not exactly Harry Potter, is it? <laughs> and um, Alistair Campbell had his head in his hands in the public gallery, and they never published a report again after that. They just did a, a written statement. So um, I don't know how much attention it got at the time, but I, I really felt I was flying on occasions like that. That is excellent. Now, the other thing, of course, which leaders of the opposition can do is make speeches. But obviously, you, you can make speeches, but there's no guarantee that anyone is going to pay any attention to them. Well, this is one of the hardest things that you're coming to now about being leader of the opposition, which is you will go through periods uh, as the leader and maybe most of the time where people are utterly uninterested in what you think and do. Now, this all depends, of course, on the expected outcome of the next general election, because if you are a leader of the opposition who's 20 or 30 points ahead in the polls and the election is coming up, well, people start to treat you virtually as if you are the prime minister with great deference and they hang on every word that you say. And if your party is riven with splits and there's a big topical crisis going on in your party, they hang on every word you say. But if it's a sort of settled political situation and the government is ahead in the way you described at the beginning and there isn't a great controversy going on that particular week, you can give speeches as leader of the opposition that nobody ever hears about. However senior you think you are, um, however many decades or years you struggle to be leader of your great party, and um, you're really just speaking into a void and and uh, the media <laughs> ignore you. In a way, I was the at a particularly unfortunate time in history from this point of view, in that in the late 1990s, politics had almost ceased to matter. Uh, the, the, this was the period where, you know, we were, we were meant to reach the end of history. We were all believers in liberal democracies and free market capitalism. Even the Labour Party had, had adopted a lot of conservative views, 
So what was there left to argue about? And that was a really terrible time to be leader of the opposition. Now, that is different now, you know, because the politics is back with a vengeance 20 years later. People can see politics is, do you leave the EU or not? And it makes a big difference to the economy one way or the other. Politics now is how do you deal with something like the COVID-19 crisis? And it may make a difference to tens of thousands of people living or dying. So politics is back and it's, it's going to stay back in the coming decades. Now, that is a more propitious time for a leader of the opposition. But even so, when a government is riding high, the leader of the opposition will sometimes struggle to get attention. Just one um, anecdote, uh, the thing I will never forget is the first time I went round to see Tony Blair when he was prime minister and I had become leader of the opposition, because you, you want to establish some sort of relationship. There are some things you have to be able to discuss out of public view. One of I can't remember which one of us said, I wonder who's got the hardest job between you and me. And um, at the same moment that I said, I do, Tony Blair said, you do. And <laughs> there, there was no doubt between us that the leader of the opposition's job was harder than the prime minister's job. I was chatting with Danny Finkelstein, who mentioned that you, you once, you spent a long time working on a speech on the environment, which went completely unreported. But then there was another speech on crime on where the Tory party should be going. And you were praised for not banging on about crime in the way that Tory leaders were often expected to, although there was a, there was a sort of accidental reason for why that happened. Yes, this was, um, well, I, I'm that sort of conservative. I'm, I'm very green, really, very environmental. And maybe I was ahead of my time in that regard. We once gave a whole speech on the blue-green agenda that we thought we had invented. Well, nobody, I, I don't think a single column millimetre was devoted to that <laughs> anywhere in the world. People weren't interested in that subject at that time. And it didn't really fit the template of what people thought a conservative leader would be talking about. So, you know, you're often up against that, that unless you're catering to your to the preconceived opinions people have of your own party, they actually blank out the, the surprising things you're doing. Although I'm a very green environmental person, I've also always favoured a rather hot, tough line on, on crime. Um, and I don't see any contradiction between these things. There was a party conference speech that I was giving where I was going to get really emotional about law and order and fighting crime, bringing down the increasing violent crime at the time. And it just got missed out of the speech somewhere amidst the 45 pages or whatever of this speech, those pages. I don't know whether, of course, I've always been suspicious about uh, that just never were there. I hardly noticed as I was tearing through this uh, great speech, great standing ovation, and then realized afterwards I never did the bit on crime. And um, the, my advisors thought this was hilarious, that we got great plaudits for this speech. This is not a leader going for the prejudices of his party, you know, he manages to excite <laughs> them. And all along, I was intending to get them really going and standing on their chairs in line with their prejudices. <laughs> <laughs> so you can get surprising reactions to speeches, certainly. Still to come, what advice would William Hague give to the new Labour leader? And would that include wearing a baseball cap? 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You mentioned your relationship with Tony Blair. And one of the things that I think maybe a lot of people uh, don't know is that the sort of the contact that there can be between sort of leader of the opposition and and the prime minister, whether it's on sort of national security issues or, you know, issues of process or the constitution. And just talk about, about how often you might speak to Tony Blair in the sort of that sort of private way. Well, I think occasionally, I don't want to overstate it, that the leader of the opposition is an official position in the British constitution. Of course, our constitution isn't written down, but this is unlike in many countries, you know, this is, you're the leader of Her Majesty's opposition, just like the prime minister is at the head of Her Majesty's government. And therefore, you do have a relationship with the official system. You can have briefings if you desire them from the intelligence agencies. They wouldn't be the same briefings that the government would get, but you can have those briefings. When it's in the run-up to an election, the civil service are under a duty to plan the next government with you, whatever your probability of being that next government. And then, of course, it can suit the government a lot of the time to brief and inform the leader of the opposition so that it so that it neutralizes lines of attack because the leader of the opposition is then able to see why the government is doing particular things therefore the the the, the contact with the prime minister is a part of that it, it's one part of of that it's also a sufficiently competitive relationship that 
you're not going to sit around for hours just having a nice chat and, um, <laughs> you know, because you don't want to give away really anything about your thinking that would then give the other side an advantage. I mean, you wouldn't even want to say, for instance, I'm going abroad three days next week because they might then launch an attack on you, um, on your party, particularly when they know you're off somewhere. You can't have a normal conversation, but you do need to cooperate on some things. And, um, so a lot was going on on Northern Ireland, of course, when, in fact, this was, I think, Tony Blair's greatest achievement was what he did in, in the Belfast Agreement. So there would be conversations about that in particular. There would be conversations about other aspects of national security, conflicts in the, in the Balkans at the time. Now, this can broaden out a lot. I think uh, probably the prime minister and leader of the opposition who spent the most time discussing things together were, in recent decades was, were almost certainly Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, because, of course, they had an attempted negotiation about settling the terms of Brexit. So they spent time together in quite a structured way with their aides, much more than would be normal or a prime minister and leader of the opposition. And then you have the chit-chat of, you know, you are together. You are at Remembrance Day at the Cenotaph. You're thrown together for quite a long time. The opening of Parliament, you have to walk in front of all the TV cameras from the House of Commons to the House of Lords and back, looking like you don't hate each other's guts, Look at looking, you know, <laughs> finding something to talk about. So there's that aspect of the relationship as well. There's a sort of public face that you put on together. It's not intimate. It, you know, Tony Blair and I have had much better conversations and better relations after that than, um, than we ever did during that time. If you were in Boris Johnson's shoes now, would you be looking to call assuming it's Keir Starmer, but whoever the new Labour leader is, in to try and have a more of a sort of consensual cross-party basis of the of the response to coronavirus? Well, I would certainly want to call him in to assume it's Keir Starmer to, to, to explain what the government is doing. And particularly, this would be the constitutionally correct thing to do at a time when Parliament isn't sitting, so uh, not sitting for... A few weeks at least. So really, the, the leader of the opposition is owed explanations from the government about what they're doing. But also, I think, just in line with what I was saying before about the various motivations of the government to brief the leader of the opposition, that you do want the leader of the opposition to be aware of things you're trying to do that there's a good reason why they can't happen. You know, if in this case... Obviously, there are many reasons why the government is finding it difficult to ramp up testing as quickly as they would like to. Well, you probably want the Leader of the Opposition to have a good understanding of what the bottlenecks are, what the difficulties are. Otherwise, he's going to be putting you under pressure to do things that you can't do. So it's in the government's interest, as well as in democracy's interest, for that sort of meeting and discussion to take place, yes. And when you become Leader of the Opposition, how how much do you sit and read the papers and worry about what people are saying about you? Or do you just have to sort of decide what it is you want to do and just plough on regardless? This is a good question. And inevitably, it's partly a matter of personal temperament as to how sensitive political leaders are. There are many people who've been prime minister who become over-obsessed with that day's 
headlines. So, of course, that can easily happen to a leader of the opposition whose entire existence is about winning the next election. So, uh, yes, uh, that is a problem. I would really counsel against it from my own experience. I think that it is so difficult for a leader of the opposition to command attention all of the time that it's better to just consistently stick over time, over several years, between when you're elected and the next election, to trying to get your basic values across to people, because they're not that interested in your policies until just before the election. Um, and to do that consistently, rather than thinking, you know, well, we're not getting enough publicity at the moment, or uh, what uh, the approach we've taken the last few weeks doesn't seem to work. Let's try a different approach. I did too much of that. I, I got too worried that we were getting nowhere. So let's launch another different initiative. <laughs> and of course, by the time it came to the election, people were able to say, well, what are you? You've lost all these different, you know, you've been right wing, you've been left wing, you've been centrist, you've been, what on earth are you? So if I ever had that to do again, which thankfully I never will have that to do again, the consistent conveying of what your values and your purpose is and not being put off by daily headlines, that's the way to go about it, I think. And if Keir Starmer were to pick up the phone to you over the weekend and say, William, I was thinking of going on a log flume wearing a baseball cap. <laughs> uh, what would you advise? And obviously, obviously, you'd advise him to stay indoors and not to go to a theme park. But a lot of time has passed since then. What, what are your reflections now on the baseball well, cap? Well, I'd say don't do it. Absolutely, I'd say don't do it. Although I would say that... Um, <laughs> I would say these things, they become part of the narrative later, you know, after the event. And again, this can happen in, in, in any public job, that if it starts not to go well, whatever photo call you did in the past suddenly starts to look very embarrassing, or, or many of them can do. You have to try and anticipate that and avoid those situations. Don't worry about grabbing publicity or the photo each day. You just have to live with the frustration that you're not always in the media, that you can't always command attention. Don't do anything unwise to try and grab that attention, I think is the, the uh, moral of that particular episode <laughs> just finally on the podcast next week we're talking about great political tv shows we did political films last week what is your favorite political tv show of all time oh my favorite political you mean a fictional show you mean a fictional yeah 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 I, yeah you, you can't say andrew the andrew marshall or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of you know whether it's yes minister or house of cards or the thick of it or whatever it might be yeah actually it was house of cards and house of cards came to a um a tragic end for uh, unavoidable reasons but until that point or particularly in its early series to me it conveyed much more than most accounts of televisual accounts of politics what the real atmosphere of politics at the top is like now, that is not to say that senior politicians actually do push people under tube trains. Um, <laughs> but, but the sorts of pressures that are on people and how much political leaders are preoccupied with something else while 
being in the focus of one particular crisis. You know, there's something else going on behind the scenes, which partly explains why they're doing what they're doing, or they make a mistake on one issue because they're really, not because they're stupid, but because their attention is really on something else. I found that aspect of politics came out more strongly from the early series of House of Cards. So that was the best one for me. And it's the American one, not the UK version. Well, the UK, for those who can think back all the way to the um, <laughs> UK, but that was very good as well. But really, yes, I was talking about the, the American version because that was a much longer series. It got more really into the nitty gritty of some of the issues that a political leader might be dealing with. So, But the, the, the biggest problem of conveying politics on television is, is this point of how do you convey the complexity of it, that a political leader during the course of one day may be weighing up 20 or 30 different issues and personnel problems and controversies and so on, and that's actually too much to convey in a visual format that people are going to watch for an hour. But nothing really lives up to the true complexity of political leadership, I'm sad to say, in the way it's presented in the popular media. Fantastic. Just finally, one sentence. If the new leader of the Labour Party calls you up, what's the one piece of advice that you'd give them? Get your values across over time and don't worry so much about the day-to-day controversies. William Hague, I think that is excellent advice, regardless of the, the extraordinary times we live in. Thank you so much. Thank you. William Hague there. Now, I know there is so much going on in the world right now with coronavirus, and there's some brilliant coverage of that on the new Times Daily podcast, Story of Our Times. But I also know how much you enjoy it when we go behind the scenes in politics and get to hear from people you know, but on topics you rarely hear them discuss. And I hope uh, that that interview with William Hague did that. I'm also conscious that in these serious times, we could all do with a bit of light relief. So next week's episode, we'll be teeing up the World Cup of political TV shows, as I mentioned. Thousands of you voted in the political films contest, and this one's likely to be even more fiercely contested. So next week, I will speak to Hugo Rifkin, the Times TV critic, about his must-sees and his TV turn-offs. But we want your nominations for the best political TV shows ever. American, British or otherwise, but they have to be TV shows and not films. Uh, send your nominations now. Email redbox at thetimes.co.uk or tweet at timesredbox. And stay tuned to my Twitter feed at Matt Chorley from 10am on Tuesday morning. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. And sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, thank you for listening. Stay at home, stay safe, and we'll speak soon. From me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.